All right, so Psalm 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, this was after Joseph interpreted his dream and gave him a plan based on what the dream said. Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. So right here in these verses, we see Pharaoh uh, giving Joseph this, this amazing power and authority in Egypt. Um, so what I want to do with you this morning is the same thing we did last week with Daniel is we're going to consider, all right, exactly what was Joseph's context that he was operating in? Uh, what was his aim as he operated in that context? And what was the source of Joseph's ability to function in the way that he did? Okay, uh, so let's consider Joseph's context. And... Um, before I, I go there, though, I do want to just remind you where we're at in the biblical storyline. I am a whole part, whole thinker, so I need to see the whole so that then I can look at the part and relate it back to the whole. Okay? So remember, a few weeks back, we looked at the story of Noah. And Noah, his story is God hitting the reset button on creation, right? God created everything, uh, humans became so wicked that God decided, you know what, I'm going to judge the evil, I'm going to get rid of the wickedness, and so God caused the flood to come, judge the world, judge the people there, but he allowed Noah, by his grace, his, Noah and his family, to uh, escape through the ark, right? And so then, uh, God basically gave Noah and his family the same commission that he gave to Adam and Eve, you know, be fruitful, multiply, Fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it on my behalf. So, what happened then? We go a little bit further along in the storyline, and uh, you know, through Noah's descendants, there comes this guy named Abraham, right? And Abraham, God gave this promise, like I'm going to make your family great. Um, you're you're going to uh, bless through you. I'm going to bless the nations of the earth. Okay, so he gives this promise to Abraham. Uh, Abraham uh, has Isaac, right? And then Isaac has Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons, one of which is Joseph. So this is how we get to Joseph, right? Now, uh, I know we were in Daniel last Sunday, so we went out of order. You would have to go 1,300 years forward in the storyline to get to Daniel. Because what happens in Daniel is Joseph's 12 sons, they do become the nation of Israel. And under King David, they become one of the world's superpowers at that time. But unfortunately, although Israel was finally positioned to be that light to the nations, the light that God would use to bless the nations, they too fell into sin. As a result, you had these pagan empires come and uh, destroy the nation of Israel and take 
the Israelite people into exile, and Daniel was one of those taken into exile in Babylon. Hopefully, now you can see, right, where we're at kind of in this Old Testament storyline. So from last Sunday, where Daniel was located, we're going to go backwards 1,300 years to when Israel was just these 12 brothers. That's it, okay? Joseph being one of them. All right, let's look at Joseph's context. Really similar to Daniel's. Um, Actually, it's like Daniel's story all over again, to be honest. Um, Like Daniel, Joseph, at the young age of 17, he was forced against his will to go live in Egypt. Can you imagine being 17, taken away from your family, your parents, going to live in a foreign land? Uh, Like the Babylonians, Egypt was the world superpower of its day. So he's going to the most powerful nation in the world at the time. Like the Babylonians, the Egyptians worshipped the vast number of gods. Uh, scholars will tell you they had names for 1,500 gods. That sounds exhausting. How do you even manage that? But they knew them by name. There were 1,500 gods that they have names for. Egyptians considered Pharaoh the divine son of the sun god, Ray. Just so you know, uh, he was this divine... Uh, son of God. Um, Like the Babylonians, the Egyptians believed in magic. Um, So, (laughs) that McDonald's song just passed. uh, Uh, You know the song I'm talking about. I don't have to sing it. In fact, uh, the scholars that I read, uh, it said that of all the ancient cultures, it was the Egyptians that were the most magic conscious. So they really, it was like Harry Potter, you know, really going on there. All right, so like the Babylonians, the Egyptians didn't have a high view of the Hebrew people. Joseph was a Hebrew. So you read, and if you were to read a couple chapters further than what I read to you in Genesis 43, verse 32, this is what you read. The Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews for this, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Oh, wow. That's strong language, an abomination, jeez. Genesis 46.34 says this, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Guess what Joseph did? Guess what his family did? They were shepherds, they tended flocks. So, things are definitely against Joseph here. Imagine how difficult it was for him. Far from home, far from his people, separated from the parents he loved. Um, he had no idea at the time that he was taken to Egypt that he would ever like see his homeland again, ever see his family again. And what's more is you're in a very, very pagan context to boot. Okay. Now, here's the point. It's the same point I made when I talked about Daniel last Sunday, is that if Joseph was able to remain faithful to the God he loved in his context, guess what? You and I can remain faithful in our context because our context isn't nearly as crazy as Joseph's. And we're better equipped in our context to be faithful. And I'll tell you why at the end of this sermon. So um, remember that one sociologist, and I shared this last Sunday, he talks about the different spaces we can inhabit as Jesus followers. One space is positive space. This is when the culture, there's rewards to being a Jesus follower, right? You know, people think well of you, um, they have respect for you. It's, it's like this honorable, admirable thing. 
There's neutral space, and that's when following Jesus neither hurts you nor really helps you. And then there's negative space where following Jesus actually costs you to follow him. Now, what we see here with Joseph in Egypt, Egypt was definitely, for sure, negative space. I said last Sunday that I think we are on that borderline between neutral and negative space here in Maslin. We're not quite in negative space yet, but I think we will be in 10 years. So our context is better. We can, we, 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 our context is better than Joseph. Okay, so that's the context. What about Joseph's aim? What was he seeking to do while he was forced to live in Egypt? Well, Joseph made it his aim to assimilate into Egyptian culture. So, let me give you some examples. Genesis 41.14 tells us that Joseph shaved. Hebrew men, they liked their facial hair, but Joseph shaved right before he went to see Pharaoh. Genesis 41.42 tells us that Joseph wore Egyptian clothes. In verse 45 of chapter 41, it tells us that Joseph received an Egyptian name and married an Egyptian woman. His wife was the daughter of a priest called Potiphera. He was the priest of On. On was a city located near present-day Cairo, which is the capital city of Egypt. And it was at the time of Joseph, the center of the worship of the Egyptian gods associated with the sun. Uh, Joseph married a woman whose dad was the priest, was one of the priests there in that city. Uh, Andrew Steinman, in his commentary on Genesis, he, he explains that to highlight the assimilation of Joseph into Egyptian society, Genesis 41 contains a number of words of Egyptian origin. The Hebrew words for Nile, reeds, magicians, fine linen are all loanwords from ancient Egyptian and occur only here in all of Genesis. We see Joseph assimilating into the culture. What's more, not only did he like assimilate culturally, but he served three of uh, three leaders, Egyptian leaders. He was in like their administration. So the first was Potiphar, right? Potiphar was the captain of the palace guard, a pharaoh's guard, right? And we see uh, Joseph serving Potiphar, and then. You uh, fast forward, Joseph is in prison. We'll talk about a little bit more about this. It's, he's unjustly put in prison. And in prison, the prison keeper put him in charge of the other prisoners. So he's serving this, this keeper of the prisoners, right? And then eventually Joseph, he becomes a Pharaoh's right-hand man. And Pharaoh is the most powerful person in the world. And so that makes Joseph number two. And as Joseph's, uh, as he's operating as Pharaoh's right-hand man, he would have been in charge of the entire country. He would have been in charge of the political administration. All the high-ranking officials would have reported to Joseph. The official documents that would be, be, be you know, passing through the kingdom would have to have his signet ring signature on it. The signet ring he got from Pharaoh. He would have managed the taxation system. And we see here in Genesis the food supply. He managed that, right? 
uh, Genesis, if you caught that in verse 43 of chapter 41, talks about how Joseph rode in the second chariot um, right behind Pharaoh. And as he strolled through towns and cities, bow the knee, the people would yell. Joseph assimilated into Egyptian culture way further than people cut from a conservative cloth would be comfortable with. And so this, I think, should give us reason to pause and think about how do we as Christians assimilate into the culture around us, into our city, in such a way that we really become one of the people that we are seeking to reach. And yet, and this is also super important, uh, <laughs> there's no... <clears throat> To, to the dismay of the real liberal thinker, um, there is no indication that uh, Joseph ever sacrificed or compromised his faith in any way, nor did he ever sub subscribe to the Egyptian worldview. And so he remained distinct from the culture around him in important ways. Look, look at this. So Genesis 39.2. Uh, Potiphar, you know, saw the, that the Lord was with Joseph. Can people say that about you? That when they see you, it's like the Lord is with that person. It makes me think, was it, was it, was it Peter and John in the New Testament? And they're like, they were with Jesus. Like, do people, I mean, that, that was Joseph. It's obvious the Lord is with him. And the Lord made all that Joseph put in his hands prosper. He was fruitful. Um, Genesis 39.9 says that when Potiphar's wife propos uh, propositioned Joseph, what was his response? Talk about distinct and countercultural to Egypt and even to our day. He says, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Wow, what a response. What a response. How about Genesis 39, 21? When Joseph was put in prison, it says the Lord was with Joseph again. The Lord was with Joseph. This is the theme. And showed him mercy. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Verse 23 states that the keeper of prison, uh, the keeper of the prison, really, once he handed something off to Joseph, he didn't he considered it done. He didn't think about it anymore. Why? Because Joseph was doing what he did at such a high level. And God was enabling all that he put his hands to to prosper that the keeper of the prison didn't have to look over Joseph's shoulder. When you're working, do people have to look over your shoulder to ensure that you do a good job at work? When Pharaoh needed his uh, uh, dreams interpreted, um, you can have, you, you find Joseph, Joseph clearly stating and giving credit to God that God will enable him to interpret the dream. When you're prospering, when you're fruitful in life, is it your habit? Do you do this without thinking sincerely, giving God the credit in your heart and mind? And when you have opportunity uh, to voice that credit goes to God, do you do it in a way that is winsome, not annoyingly, but do you have the, the courage to say it? Or are you a cosmic plagiarist where you take credit for God's work in your life? 
when Joseph had two sons, he named the first Manasseh. And again, I'm, I'm sharing this all with you just so you can see how Joseph remained distinct from the Egyptian culture, even though he assimilated into it in, in, in great ways. When he uh, named his first son Manasseh, what that means is cause to be forgotten. And so what Joseph was saying in naming his son this, that I have gone through a terrible life of suffering, but God has so blessed me that he's caused me to forget that. It's behind me now. I'm no longer looking to the past. I'm looking ahead. And then when he names his second son uh, Ephraim, jo Joseph knew that it was, he named him this because he knew that God was the one allowing him to be fruitful, even though he was in the land of affliction. Joseph was such a phenomenal uh, administrator and strategist that he saved Egypt from a seven-year famine. Remarkable what he did to navigate that. So we talk about, we're talking about total distinctness here. Distinctness. The way of God operating in this man's life. Heaven and earth colliding in the life of Joseph. Can people say that about your life? Are you the place where heaven and earth is meeting, touching? Long before uh, Daniel existed, and he, long before Daniel was following Jeremiah's advice that we read last Sunday, Joseph was living, living it out. Jeremiah gave this advice to the exiles, including Daniel, in Babylon, but Joseph was doing it in, in Egypt 1,300 years before. This was the advice Jeremiah gave to Daniel. Build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. Take wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. Joseph was doing this. No doubt Joseph was praying for the Egyptians. No doubt he was seeking the peace of the Egyptians. Look at how he worked to avoid this, this uh, to navigate the famine. No doubt Joseph wanted the wholeness uh, the healing of the Egyptians. No doubt, there's no doubt in my mind that Daniel was looking to Joseph's example when he was in exile in Babylon. Now, here's something I want to draw our attention back to because this is an important episode that we can look at to see how Satan wants to work in our lives. Let's go back to the episode with uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife, right? The Bible doesn't say that she was attractive, but look, uh, Potiphar was a high-ranking official. My guess is she was probably pretty good-looking, okay? And so what you have, you have a Potiphar's wife with all the gusto and bravado that she can muster up, going to Joseph, singing Marvin Gaye's song to him. You know what song that I'm talking about. And what she's doing with her power that she has because she's Potiphar's wife, she's using that power to get her desires met. Right? And here we have Joseph. He's powerful too. He's Potiphar's right-hand man at, at this time. But don't you see what Jesus, or not what Jesus, thank God, what, what Satan is doing here to Joseph. He's saying, look, here she is. 
You've been working hard, right, Joseph? Look at what you've been doing for the kingdom. Don't you deserve to let off a little bit of steam? Nobody's around. you got the power to do it. Uh, pleasure's a good thing. Why not meet one of your needs? Use your power to meet one of your needs. And don't you see, remember what I said last week, and I hope you wrote this down last week. If you didn't, write it down this week. This quote from John Mark Comer. Deceptive ideas come from Satan that play to our disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful world. Deceptive ideas come from Satan that play to our disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful world. Don't you see Satan was firing, I'm sure, deceptive ideas to Joseph at one of his desires, which is pleasure, which was definitely normalized amongst the powerful in Egypt. That's what Satan does, okay? Now why, and this is absolutely critical, why was Joseph able to resist the temptation? The answer is because the Joseph's desires were not disordered. That's why. Yes, did, did Joseph have desire for pleasure? Yeah, he's a human being. And that desire is a God-given desire. Isn't it amazing we serve a God who wants us to experience pleasure? He gave us that gift. That's remarkable. It's awesome. And yet, his desire for pleasure was not above his desire to please the God that he loved. His desire was properly ordered underneath his desire to honor his God, and to love him. That's how we resist temptation. You see, this is how we defeat sin. You will never defeat sin by willpower alone. You won't. The way you defeat sin is that when God, God has to become so beautiful to you, so wonderful, so great and good in your mind and in your heart that your greatest desire is to please this beautiful, this glorious God. Because when God becomes that to your heart, sin loses its appeal. But until God becomes that to your heart, there's all sorts of things where you're, that are going to play to your disordered desires. Now, We can stop and ask, what does it mean for us to engage the world in a distinctively Christian way? Well, we look at Joseph. We do our work extremely well. Nobody should be able to do higher quality work than you at your place of employment. Unless you got other Christians that are working, but you should be on the same level of doing like superior work. You should be doing work with the aim to seek the shalom of the community you're working in, which means the, the spiritual wholeness, the physical wholeness, the economic wholeness, uh, every, wholeness in every single way for your community, that's what the shalom, the peace of the community means. You should give credit to God for your fruitfulness. We talked about Daniel's habit habits of prayer and Sabbath keeping last week. This is an amazing habit that we must develop. 
This is a habit. This is a spiritual discipline, giving God the credit for the good in your life. That's a discipline. We use our power to serve others instead of using it to serve ourselves. Christians should always utilize power in the appropriate ways. Our world is full. Our culture is full. This is normalized in our culture, is that you use power to continue for your glory, to continue to elevate your status, to serve you. That's how people use power in the kingdom of this world. We, if we're going to be distinct, will use power to lay down our life to raise others up. That's countercultural. Right? Okay. Um, we need to exhibit character that does the right thing at the right time with the right motivation to love God and others, even when no one is looking and even when it's going to cost us. Joseph did the right thing in resisting, fleeing from Potiphar's wife. And what happened? He was rewarded, right? God just sent him a bunch of blood. No, he ended up in prison for two years because he did the right thing with the right motivation to honor God and to love Potiphar's wife and to love Potiphar. He ends up in prison for two years. In one of Tim Keller's sermons, he, he said this was the greatest test of Joseph. And it could be a great test for us. What happens when you do everything right? When you follow God and you're obedient to Him and it doesn't work out? What are you going to do? This might be the greatest test of all. Right? Do we see Joseph in prison? I'm sure he was grieved. I mean, who, who goes to prison unjustly and like, yeah... But did he grieve without hope? Was he ever in despair? We have no indication that he was ever in despair. And so this is the last thing. So we do our work extremely well. We, we uh, work for the shalom of the city. We, we, did, we give credit to God for our fruitfulness. We use our power to serve others instead of serving ourselves. We exhibit the character that does the right thing at the right time with the right motivation. And then we handle injustice and other forms of suffering with, yes, grief but also with hope and not despair. When you're suffering, the world is watching. And how you handle that suffering is probably the greatest apologetic, the greatest testimony that you could possibly give a watching world. And if you suffer just in the same ways that the culture around us suffers as they grieve without hope, what testimony is that? All right, last thing I want to look at here is Joseph's source. How was he able to do it? How was he able to do this? Well, just as Daniel's source was God, Joseph's source was God. And you say, okay, I knew that answer, and all right, I'm tuned out now. Because it just sounds like the Sunday school answer, right? But let me tell you, what God did in Joseph's life to get him to the place where he was in the world and not of it. This is the part that you're not going to want to hear. Joseph, when he was 17, he was arrogant, he was prideful. His dad, Jacob, didn't do a good job of helping that out because Jacob made it known to his 12 sons uh, that Joseph was his favorite. And Joseph had this dream 
that he would be ruling over his brothers. And Joseph made it known to his brothers, hey, I'm ruling over you. And then he had the dream again, and he made it known again. And so his brothers learned to despise and just, they hated Joseph so badly that they plotted his murder. And that's what all led to them selling him into slavery, thinking they could get rid of Joseph in their life and not have to deal with this arrogant, prideful uh, 17-year-old anymore. And when you look at this, it's like, man, you know, Joseph was, uh, was being arrogant and prideful, but he didn't deserve what his brothers did to him. And yet, it seems so on the surface harsh, but I am convinced that this was the best possible way for God to produce the best possible outcome in Joseph's life and in the life of others. Because what happened is, as Joseph went through being sold into slavery, right? What we see is a Joseph that becomes dependent on God. A Joseph that is humble. A Joseph that wants to honor God above everything and anything else. Can you imagine the wreck Joseph's life would have become if God let his pride and his arrogance go unchecked? It would have been horrible. Do you think he would have been able to resist Potiphar's wife? No. Do you think he would have became this, this phenomenal leader that led with such supernatural wisdom because he was so dependent upon God and wanted to please him? Do you think Joseph would have used his immense power, power that you and I will never even come close to seeing? Do you think he would have leveraged that power for the benefit of others and not himself? No, he would have used that power to enhance his glory. Think about it. Um, in a sermon uh, that Tim Keller preached in 2003, he quoted uh, this guy named William uh, Cowper. Uh, Cowper, he struggled with depression, and when he would come out of his depressive episodes, he often wrote hymns about his experiences. And this is what he writes in the hymn that Keller referenced. God moves a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and rides upon the storm. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. I love these lines here. Behind a frowning providence hides a smiling face. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. Clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Can you and I become a Joseph? Absolutely. Why? I'm going to tell you why. Because you are better equipped than Joseph to be a Joseph. You are better equipped to be a Joseph than Joseph. Why? First of all, Joseph didn't have the story of Joseph. You have that story. You have this amazing story where, you know, the, the enemy meant it for harm. But what? God meant it for good. You have the story. But here's what you have that Joseph didn't. That is the key to living like a Joseph and why we're better equipped than him. If the key to overcoming temptation is finding God so beautiful that our greatest desire is to honor him, guess where there's no better place to look and to see the splendor of God? 
in the face of Jesus Christ. Joseph couldn't look in the face of Jesus Christ and behold his glory. And when we behold Christ's glory, we see this beautiful, wonderful Son of God that has unmatched power, but He gives it all up and becomes this, this person on the cross for you and me to rescue us from the grip of Satan. Because it's our unforgiven sin that keeps us in the grip of Satan. And it keeps us in spiritual deadness, destined for eternity apart from God. But Jesus, he plunges into our exile, into our Egypt, and he takes on all the powers of darkness upon himself in our place so that we could be transferred into his kingdom of light. It's remarkable. And his kingdom will be the last one standing. Don't you see the beauty of Jesus? The one who made himself poor so you could become rich. The one who died so that you could live. May this not become stale to us. The one who was rejected so that you could be accepted. The one who entered unimaginable darkness to bring you into light. The one who is responsible for every good thing in your life. The one who has given you the very breath that is going in and out of your lungs right now. You see, hear this. To the degree that Jesus is beautiful to you is the degree by which sin will lose its hold on you. The degree that Jesus is beautiful to you is the degree by which sin will lose its hold on you. Um, one last thing here, and then I'm done. Uh, so, so with Joseph's story, right, we see how God, um, what was meant for evil, God used for good. Joseph's story is a great example of that. But you know a story that's even greater than that, of that? idea that, that explains that idea is Jesus' story. And you have that story to look back on. The greatest evil ever committed in our world, the greatest injustice ever committed was the death of the sinless Son of God. And God took that mess and He created so much good out of it that He accomplished your salvation and my salvation if your trust is in Jesus. And so... What a story of God using mess for good. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, make Jesus so beautiful to us so that sin loses its appeal. So that your opinion matters more to us than what other people's opinions say. So that Christ's character becomes ours so that we have the courage to engage in the Egypt that we are temporary residents of currently in the right ways with the right motivation so that others might experience your unmatched greatness and goodness and so that some might put their trust in you. And Lord, when the going gets tough, Give us the power to not despair. To know that even in our suffering, that uh, we have hope because we have the assurance that you're using the mess for, to save our life 
and to the save, to save the lives of many others. It's in Jesus' name we pray.